This is the human body and joining me, Dr. Michael Todorovic. Unfortunately, tonight, Dr. Matthew Barton isn't here, but I want you to consider for a moment the inside of your mouth. Indeed, it's all about taste tonight. Good evening, by the way. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Why do we have a sense of taste? What What is the reason for it? So the sense of taste and the sense of smell uh, sort of come together in a package and they're probably the oldest uh, sensations that we have when we look at it in evolutionary terms mm. because it's a way for us to detect chemicals in our environment. So whether these chemicals are in the air or in our food or in our drink and it basically tells us whether they're good chemicals or bad chemicals. So does a particular taste definitely, are, are we you know, evolved so that those things that will hurt us somehow taste bad? Or, yeah, absolutely. Yeah? yeah. So if we have a look at our taste, so if we first look at the tongue, we know that we see all those bumps on the tongue and we yep. refer to them as taste buds. In actual fact, they're called papillae, which is Latin for nipple. It just means there's a bump up. Right. And so if you take those bumps and have a look, the taste buds are sitting on those bumps. So, okay, so they're very, very small. Very small. So microscopic. So if you take one of those bumps, there's probably around about half a dozen to a dozen taste buds on each of those bumps. And then if you take one taste bud, inside of those taste buds are your taste receptors. And so you've got taste receptors that'll pick up five separate tastes. Mm -hmm. So these separate tastes are sweet, sour, bitterness, saltiness, and then umami, which is Japanese for delicious. And that mm. is, umami is uh, the savoury, uh, the MSG taste, the uh. taste you get from meats and aged cheeses, for example. Yum. And so when it comes to uh, the way we've evolved these particular tastes, what we'll find just generally speaking is that we will be inclined to eat sugary, sweet, those sweet tastes, mm -hmm. and will be disinclined to ingest foods that have a bitter taste. And that's often because most poisons and toxins have a bitter taste to them. So why do we enjoy those bitter tastes then? If, if we're programmed really not to, why coffee, for example, black coffee, which I love, but it is bitter. Why do I enjoy that? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, this is where it can't, we bring the genetics and the environment together. So you always hear of this nature versus nurture. Is it yep. the genes or is it the environment? You're going to find that 99% of the time, it's both having conversation together. And so if we just look at the genetics, the genetics is going to tell us, okay, something sweet, we want, it's sugar, gives us energy, beneficial. Something bitter uh, often is telling us it's a poison or a toxin. Let's not go there. But what's going to happen is with our environment, we can behaviorally change that or alter that a little bit. Uh, and one of the examples is with coffee. So what mm. we need to go along with that bitterness in order for us to enjoy it is a positive experience. And so the positive experience with coffee is the caffeine and yep. that hit that we get. So we're happy to take... So you'll probably find that the first time you drank coffee, you thought it was disgusting. Same mm. with alcohol. But because you get some sort of benefit from it, then you change yourself behaviorally to enjoy that bitterness. What's the difference then between taste and flavour? So taste is simply picking up on those receptors, whether it's sweet, sour, bitter, salty mm. or umami. But flavour is actually a combination of that taste with the ability to smell those chemicals as well mm. and also the texture 
of the food. So basically, yeah. flavour is a mixture between taste, texture and smell. Uh, do certain parts of the tongue detect specific tastes? So you've probably heard for years and years and years that, you know, one part of the tongue will pick up sweet, one mm. part of the tongue will pick up sour and so forth, which is true and also isn't true at the same time. So this sort of, this idea came from a paper which just didn't explain it very well. Basically, every single taste bud has every single receptor to pick up every single taste. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter where you are in the tongue, it can pick up sweet, sour, salty, bitter and so forth. Yep. But what the way the tongue is sorted is that uh, some of these taste buds are more sensitive to certain tastes. And what you'll find is that the front of the tongue, the tip of the tongue is more sensitive to uh, salty tastes and umami mm -hmm. and the back of the tongue is more sensitive to bitter tastes and the side of the tongue is more sensitive to sour tastes yep. but those taste buds still contain receptors that pick up those other tastes okay well that makes sense yes because whenever you think of a sour taste like lemon or something the sides of your tongue just almost start to weep that's right. If and you that start to sense. salivate and yes. you start to try and dilute that out. <laughs> yeah. Yes, even though you haven't got any lemon. It's like your your brain sends the message, oh, no, there's lemon there or whatever. Well, that's actually really important it. in digestion. The It's called the mm. cephalic phase of, of digestion. And so when you come home, if you're lucky and your partner's cooked dinner for you and you walk through the door Yay! and you smell that food, your mouth starts to salivate. Mm. And so what's what that's doing is preparing your body to eat. And so this is actually important because because sometimes when you'll take some sugary food into your mouth and you start to chew it, before you've even swallowed that sugary food, your pancreas has started to release insulin into your bloodstream to prepare your body to be able to absorb that glucose. Oh. Yeah, so it actually prepares you to be able to do that. Well, that's interesting. So yeah. does that mean that if I just look at a bit of chocolate cake that I've set off an insulin response in my body somehow? Potentially. I'm more, in trouble. More so, <laughs> well, that's right. more so if you were to put that chocolate into your mouth and simply just suck on it for a little bit, yeah. there would be insulin that's getting released. Okay. Yeah. How come? I'm just going to move on. It's too depressing. When people get food poisoning, mm. how come it is it that, how is it that we can then become averse to eating that food again? We go, no. Or alcohol, for example. Everyone has mm. that. Not everyone, Kelly. A lot of people <laughs> have that one bit of alcohol. They go, I'm never touching that again because when I was 18, let's go with 18. Yes. I had a bad experience with it, Uzo. And then, uh, very true. Yeah. Or sometimes you say that and then two weeks later you're back on it again. Yeah. And well, so it's been 30 years. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. never going back. I think a lot of people have that experience with Uzo. <laughs> it's, it's very 80s. But, yeah. but we do. We have those certain things we go, never going back there. Yes, true. And so that, again, has to do with that behavioural response too. Mm. So you may ingest the food and you may get food poisoning from it. So you may have some sushi, for example, get yep. food poisoning, you get quite ill. And then what happens is you've had a negative experience with that food. And this is the whole reason why we've developed this gustatory, which is the, the taste system, um, because we need to learn what foods are good, what foods are bad very, very quickly. Otherwise, mm. we can die. So if a, a food has made you sick, then your brain's going to remember that and your brain's going to say, don't touch it. Mm. What you can. And so that's that's uh, taste aversion. What do we taste that though? If if uh, let's say we've made something and, and an ingredient mm. was off, why don't we taste? That? I mean, sometimes we will if it's particularly strong, but often we don't. And then you know, bang! Uh, however long later, 
So uh, a lot of the time that, that would potentially be due to some sort of pathogen or invading microbe that's within that oh, okay. particular food. So not necessarily the food itself. That's but right. It, like salmonella? Is salmonella, some sort yep. of bacterial infect, uh, some sort of bacteria that's infected that food product. Yep. That can also make you sick, but that can also tell you not to eat that food again. Mm. So there may not necessarily be anything wrong with the food itself yep. or the taste of the food. It's just it's been infected with something. Oh, that makes sense. There are some people who can apparently taste words. Oh, I love this. Is this a synesthesia? Yeah, this is synesthesia. So I just love, I'm obsessed with synesthesia. I think mm. it's one of the most amazing things. Do you have things. synesthesia? I don't. Up to about 4% of the population have synesthesia. So, I mean, mm. if there's any listeners with any form of synesthesia, I'd love to hear Give your us type a call of if you taste words. And I, we're not going to make fun of you because you probably get people making fun of you because it sounds bizarre. But for those who we've talked about synesthesia on the show before, mm. uh, can you explain what it is for those who don't know? What are you talking about? So, synesthesia is when you have some sort of stimuli or sensory input and it manifests via another sensation. Mm. So, this so if we talk about the people who taste words, for example, mm. this type of synesthesia, which is called uh, lexical gustatory synesthesia. So basically it means that these individuals, if they read a word, hear a word, speak a word, or sometimes even think a word, they taste some sort of food-based flavor. So wow. as an example, there was a, an individual who stated that the word this tastes of bread soaked in tomato soup and that the name Philip tastes of unripe oranges. Oh. Yeah. I do like this. Well, that's good because you hear the word this a lot. If I know, imagine this that. tasted foul, exactly. Well, there are big trouble. There are some times in which they hear a word and it does taste, uh, have that mm. foul taste and it can make them sick. And so they'll be averted to using particular words. Mm. Um, but there's only been, I think there's 11 reported cases of these, this so far with maybe a handful of historical cases. But there's so mm. many different types of synesthesia. I mean, yes. uh, the musician Pharrell has synesthesia in which when he hears music, he sees colours. Colours, yeah. yeah. That's a common one, isn't it? And numbers and colours yes. are often related for people with synesthesia as well. That's called uh, chromesthesia. Mm. Fascinating what our brains do. Mm. All right, now let's get to no one's ringing for tasting words. No, <laughs> and that's fair enough because it's such a small percentage of, of any population. Yes. Why don't kids like the taste of vegetables? So this, kids are like super tasters. Mm -hmm. So is that because what? So why is that? You, you tell me. Yeah. So with those five different tastes that we can pick up, yeah. bitterness is the one we, we want, evolutionary speaking, we want to avoid. Mm -hmm. Um, but what we find is that when kids are born so that the genetics kicks in, they haven't necessarily had that time, that experience to be able to get used to bitter types of food and have positive experiences with them and so forth. Mm -hmm. So kids love sugary stuff yep. because there's huge amounts of energy there, allows them to survive, keep going, but they really dislike bitter foods. Mm. And so the cruciferous vegetables, which is the broccolis, yeah. the uh, cabbage and so forth, they, ha they are very, very bitter. And so when kids taste this, they just hate it and they avoid it. Yep. And so this is actually beneficial because it's an indication that at a young age, we've evolved to avoid bitter tasting foods, which are potentially poisonous. And as we get older, we may be able to get used to it and say, okay, maybe uh, something that's a little bit bitter is okay, but something very bitter may not be okay. Mm. I wondered whether it was because all the little taste receptors are too close together on their tongues. Like, are we born with 
a certain amount and yeah. it's all just packed together and as we get older, you know, the tongue gets bigger too and so they if, spread out a bit more? Or? Yeah, if you look at the... So humans have around about 7,500 to 8,000 taste buds. Okay. Uh, which, if you compare that to cats, cats have 450 taste mm. buds. So not many dogs have less yeah. So, well, not less than That's cats. They've got, more than, they've got more than cats. Uh, true. <laughs> they've got more than cats, but less than humans. So, humans, 7,500 taste buds. Cows have 25,000 taste really? buds. Really? Yeah. They just eat grass day after so, day. So, this is the strange thing. You would think, well, they just eat grass, so why would they need more taste buds? But yes. the answer is that the carnivorous animals, like cats, for example, yeah. there's actually not many dangerous substances within the meat that they eat. So mm -hmm. they don't, and, and if, um, what they eat isn't varied. It's just meat. And so they don't need to pick up any potential poisons or anything like that. But the majority of naturally occurring uh, toxins and poisons are plant-based. Uh -huh. And so cows will only eat plant-based material, and they need to very quickly be able to determine whether something that they're eating on the ground, the grass, is poisonous or not. And so that's why the herbivores usually have more taste buds. Right, to protect them. To protect them. That's fascinating. And those super tasters, mm. so we have about 7,500 super tasters just have more taste buds, but what you'll find is it sounds like a wonderful superpower mm. to have, Yes, but they end up just really predominantly just tasting more bitter things. So they just become more picky with the food that they eat and they just tend to find uh, more food bitter. All right, because I used to think that if you're a super taster, then red velvet cake must just be a fabulous experience for you, but not necessarily. No, that's right. The The sugar should taste about the same. Yep. It's just the, bitter. the bitterness. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? it you don't does. want that superpower, do no, you? No, you don't want we that. We want the eye superpower. Yes. We were talking yeah, about a couple right. of weeks ago. Yes. Where you super see. That's <laughs> the one we want. What happens when some medical conditions inhibit taste or, or some medicines inhibit taste? So you'll find that with the 7,500 taste buds, as you age, they start to die off. Mm. And usually this starts to kick in around about... 40, 50 years of age, that's when they start to really die off. Um, this is natural. This happens normally. And so what you'll find is uh, the elderly will be less sensitive. Overall, they'll be less sensitive to those five tastes. Okay. So what that means is they usually need to have stronger tastes uh, in order for them to be able to experience the same tastes. The problem with this is our sense of taste is very important in order to get us to maintain eating. And so mm. if foods don't have that nice taste to them, this can lead to weight loss, mm. malnutrition, for example. So a lot of issues. Um, and it also means that some of the elderly may seek uh, foods that are even more salty or even more sweet than what they should be eating as well, which again can have those mm. health side effects. Yeah. So that's what happens normally with the taste buds, but you can have certain medical conditions or you can have certain medications that can alter your sense of taste. So I think the important point, first of all, is to say that when we're eating food, a lot of our taste, actually a good portion of what we taste is actually coming from our sense of smell. And this is because as we eat, we release the chemicals into that atmosphere and we inhale them and those chemicals go up into our nose, hit neurons at the very top of our nasal cavity that then go to our brain and tell us that we've smelt something. And so they actually work together, those two systems, the taste and the sense of smell. What you'll find is the majority of people who come in to see a doctor, for example, to, talk, to say that, you know, I've got dysregulation or a problem with my sense of taste, the majority of the mm -hmm. time, it's a problem with their sense of smell. 
uh, rather than taste. That's right. And so, as an example, the sense of smell is important for us to be able to taste uh, cola, chocolates, mm. licorice, strawberries, and without that sense of smell, those tastes basically disappear. And so mm. we can recognise this when we have colds, for example. And so we've got things all this mucus. Yeah, things yeah. don't taste the same and they don't have that same mm. uh, flavoursome feel to it. Yeah. Uh, it's just sort of blunted. Mm. Um, pregnancy is another one. Absolutely. I remember being pregnant and things just tasting not quite the same. So that's Metallic an, too. Metallic and mm. also that's when you become a super taster and things taste more bitter than what they'd usually taste as well. Mm. And again, that's important if you think about it evolutionary. Uh, they've got a baby. Mm. They're trying to protect the baby. So they become even more sensitive to food just in case some of that yep. food may be poisonous. They become super tasters. Mm. And just throw everything back up. And also so throw everything back up. a little bit of nutrient, up. the rest of it's coming back up. Exactly. That's not good. Yeah. So, can we be conditioned to like certain tastes? Are there, for example, uh, does repetition give you tolerance? There are some families who say, "Oh, my kids are eating spicy food, and they just do it because we do it." Yeah, and I get that, but does that work? Or once again, are we looking at a genetic component? So, uh, it's a bit of everything. Yeah. But when you look at spicy foods, for example, uh, the heat-producing chemical in the spicy foods called capsaicin. Mm -hmm. And so the more capsaicin you have, you can become desensitised to it. Yep. So you can become desensitised to certain uh, flavours of food, absolutely. What changes over time isn't necessarily the quality of the taste, meaning a salty taste will never become a sweet taste over time mm -hmm. and a bitter will never become uh, salty, for example. But what does change is your perception of the taste. And again, that has to do with when you ate the food, what happened while you ate that food, did you have a good or bad experience? If you have a look at when we taste something, and again, that taste is simply coming from those receptors, but when you experience a flavour, like I said, the taste with the smell and the mm -hmm. texture, what happens is all that input goes to the brain. Now, there's two important parts of the brain that people should be aware of for taste. There's one that sort of sits just behind our ears, really relatively deep to just where our ears are, and that's called the insula. Mm -hmm. And this part of the brain is responsible for the quality, so whether it's sour, bitter, or whatever it may be, and also the uh, sensitivity to it. So yep. we just know, so when we taste something, we just know is it sensitive or is it bitter, and is it very strong or not strong? That's mm -hmm. all that tells us. But there's a part of our brain at the very front, so the frontal lobe, and what that frontal lobe does is it's our reward system for taste. So it tells us what we want to taste or what we feel like we taste. Mm -hmm. Or if we're hungry, it says you're hungry, you need to eat something. And so this is where, for example, you may go, you know what? I want a really salty packet of chips right now. And so you'll eat this packet of chips. And then what you mm -hmm. find is at the end of the packet, you couldn't eat one more chip. And you no longer have that need to eat the chips. If you have a look at somebody's brain while they're doing this, that insula is firing off the whole time. It's going, I'm tasting, I'm tasting, I'm tasting, I'm tasting. And then you look at the frontal lobe and it's firing off. But as you become less and less inclined to eat that food because you're no longer hungry, mm. there's no more reward, those neurons just turn off and they stop firing. And then you lose all that reward and you go, oh, I'm not getting any dopamine, which makes me happy, which makes me feel like I want to continue to eat. And then you just stop. So that mm. insula keeps, will always fire off, but it's the frontal lobe that really tells you whether you should keep eating or stop eating. 
You were talking before about uh, you know the cows having more mm. taste receptors. How do we know that animals don't taste things that we don't taste? Do, so, do we know that? That's a good question. Uh, I think the best way that we can look at this is when you look at the receptors themselves for the different tastes. Mm. You look at what triggers them to fire off into the brain. And so, for the salt receptor, it's easy. It's salt. Sodium mm. chloride triggers it to fire off. For umami, it's glutamate. So, monosodium glutamate, MSG, triggers it to fire off. Uh, for the sour, it's acid. Mm -hmm. um, and for the bitter, it's quinines. Uh, which is uh, the alkaloids, which gives that the, yeah. a, lo a lot of poisons are based like that. Um, and so, if you have a look at that, that's for humans. If you compare the receptors in the animals, it's exactly the same. All right. So, the same triggers, are tri which now mm. that doesn't necessarily mean they're experiencing the taste the same way because all of our sensation, whether it's touch, whether it's smell, whether it's taste or whatever it may be, yeah. is all at the level of the brain. It's all about perception. Mm. I mean, that's that's the thing. Every So, I could get an electrode and trigger that insular part of your brain yeah. and you'll go, oh, I'm tasting sugar or oh, I'm tasting salt. So, it really depends on how that brain is integrating that information and making sense of it. With me this evening on The Human Body, Dr. Michael Todorovic, uh, his uh, usual partner in crime here, Dr. Matt Barden, uh, is unavailable tonight. But we're talking about taste. Do taste buds grow back if we've had some sort of damage? Yes. So, it's around about every 10 to 14 days that our taste oh, buds regenerate. okay. That's regenerate. pretty regular. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. quite good. But because they regenerate quite often... Mm. If you think about other cell types that regenerate quite often, which is the skin, which is the hair, which are the cells within our digestive system, the reason why this is important to bring up is because uh, anti-cancer drugs, what they mm. do is because a cancer is a disease of rapidly dividing cells, those drugs target rapidly dividing cells and they don't care whether they're cancerous or non-cancerous. Mm. And so, if somebody's taking an anti-cancer drug, it's going to target the cancer cells but also the other rapidly dividing cells and that includes those of the taste buds, ah. which means that one of the side effects of taking these chemotherapeutics can be a loss of a sense of taste or even a dysregulation of a sense of taste. What does that mean? So, it could be that instead of tasting something, um, so they, they put something sweet on their tongue, it may taste metallic, for example. Mm. So, it could alter their sense of taste as well. How do we remember taste? So, you know, if you've, like before when I mentioned lemon, I could, I could taste lemon. Yes. Um, or I've, I've thought I could, <laughs> put it that way. Yeah. What's happening when we remember a taste? So, that is... A great question and a very difficult question to answer because memory is very hard. Yeah. Uh, it has to do with, again, that insula that I spoke about for mm -hmm. the quality and also the frontal lobe, which is there for the reward system. The amygdala is a part of our brain, which also elicits some sort of emotional response. And the, and the hippocampus also allows us to store memories. Mm. All of these areas of the brain with others working concert in order for us to keep a memory. So, it seems that short-term memory is going to happen somewhere in the insula and then the long-term memory needs to be established. How that happens, it's, it's beyond <laughs> me, I think. It's, uh, we don't, we, well, we don't necessarily know where the memories are yep. stored. We know that there are parts of the brain that store memories, but for taste, it's, it's very difficult. All right. Well, it's been fascinating once again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly.